right, what's going on? Canucks talk back again here on a Tuesday, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. He is my co-host, Canucks insider, Thomas Drance, of course, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Uh, music, the intro music. Still liking it. Still enjoying it. Growing on me, even, I would say. I mean, I, I really don't like it until the pan flutes come in, and then I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, pan flutes. <laughs> then you're all in. Um, Hey, Jamie. Sure, yes. What, what kind of man are you? Oh, boy. Well, do you want to see my phone? <laughs> No, I don't need to see your food photos and pictures just, of your children. Yeah, that's basically what it is. Yeah. It's just no. all pictures of my kids. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I would pass Babcock's test, actually. Um, mine are the most deranged six-leg NFL parlays. <laughs> uh, really tough one for, for your boy last night with that I Jets actually think, uh, defeat. Uh, or I think Jets win over the Bills. The thing that Babcock would be most disgusted with, among many things, but specifically about my phone, would be just the incredible state of disrepair that it's in. It, like, barely works. Oh, most you're... of the buttons you can't really... Like, even, like, the like the screen, there's a, a band on the bottom of it that's, like, flashes, like, static, like you used to get on old-school TVs. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. That's, that's just going on. So. so you've downloaded the Spider-Man app? I have not downloaded the Spider-Man app. I don't know what that is. It's when your phone cracks and looks oh, like okay. it's got the yeah. web slinger. No, yeah. the screen is all right. It's just like the back of it is all completely destroyed. And yeah, yeah, I, I, don't, I think Babcock would be like, come on, respect yourself. What a story, by the way. My goodness. No, drama, not around the Vancouver Canucks, around the NHL today. But let's talk Canucks, right? Let's talk let's, Canucks. Let's talk Canucks and let's talk about something we probably should have done and didn't today. And the concept of a strong start. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because that's really the theme. That's like the September theme of the Canucks discourse around around the city, right? And, and it should be. Like, let's be real. Oh, yeah. It should be. I mean, and I will say, it's not just from us, from the talking heads, or no. from the fans. It's from the team, from right? players, like the players, the coach. Management. Yes, it's really important that we get off to a strong start this year. We have to be very real when we discuss this team. In, like, accepting that this is a factual statement with zero editorial. It's neither negative or positive. It's objectively true. The Canucks have not made it out of the first month of the regular season with any realistic playoff shot since nineteen uh, since 2019. You were going way back there. Yeah, 1994. <laughs> no, since, since 2019. Yes. Right? Like, before we knew what COVID was. <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, it's wild. Jack Eichel was still a Buffalo Sabre. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm sure I can come up oh, with yeah, other things. A million other things. <laughs> yes, it was a very different world. A very, yeah. very different world. No uh, one called then. me negative. Anyway, <laughs> it's been a long time since the Canucks even made it through the first month of the season with the ability to look, like, for their fans to be able to, like, look at the standings and just be like, oh, we've got a shot. Mm -hmm. I mean, and by the way, one thing I hate, Early in the season, when teams who you know are not good are like, you know, four zero and one, and their fans start screenshotting the photos of them at the top of the standings, five games in or whatever, and it's just like, guys, that's pathetic. The Buffalo Sabers move for a long time. <laughs> oh, totally, <laughs> for a long time. Oh, I mean, lots of fan bases have done it, and it's 
always the worst, the saddest. So if that happens to the Canucks, by the way, good start achieved. Let's let's keep it to like, hey, they've made a good start, and not yeah, the, the good start is not the standing screen caps. A good start is a good start. It's part of the process. It's not the entire process. When, like it's the when first do you think goal? it's acceptable to start to like share screenshots in gloating fashion of the standings? Honestly, like probably into January, I would guess. Oh, I say All Star break. Yeah, I would be very very nervous about doing it pre New Year. Definitely not before thirty games. No, definitely not before that. Um, but it is. I think it's a really interesting subject because we all, everyone agrees on how important the start is. Everyone, absolutely everyone knows, man, the starts have absolutely buried them. It's been a disaster the last couple of seasons, even going back to the COVID North Division season. You have to avoid that. Arguably, that was the worst one. I mean, last year was the worst one. But the COVID season, because remember, the team had just made it to the second round. Like, people spent the early part mm-hmm. of that offseason comparing the Canucks core to the young Blackhawks core. Like, this wasn't a team with expectations of, like, maybe they'll turn it around and make the playoffs. This was, like, the Canucks are building something special here. And, yeah, losing all the players that they did in free agency did change that narrative, but only a bit. Nate Schmidt had come in. People were like, this is the deepest Canucks blue line since 2010-11. That was, like, a popular local talking point. Like, that team, a lot was expected of that team. Mm-hmm. A lot. And you remember, like, JT Miller misses the first two games in, in COVID protocol. He, like, flies out to meet the team yep. in Alberta. And it's just a disaster from, from the get-go. So, to me, anyway, that was, like, the biggest letdown because the expectations were high. It also feels, though, like the... And it what now looking back, it's not an outlier, but you, you could put it in an outlier category at the time because it was like... It was the pandemic. It was the North Division season. As you said, JT Miller was started the season in COVID protocol. There was so much bizarre and weird about that season. You could kind of silo it off. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, you look back and say, well, maybe that was the start of a pattern. Sure. But at the time, it was kind of like, well, this was an insane experience well, we all just had. Especially because as poor and undermanned as the Canucks regularly were in the Travis Green era, one thing they pretty consistently did until that season was start strong, mm-hmm. right? Like the first... Mm-hmm six weeks of the season, the Canucks would be like, you know, just close enough that the team would blame injuries and we'd all roll their roll our eyes, you know, in, in late November, early December. Um, and then all of a sudden it just fell apart immediately. And then Tyler Toffoli, you know, um, emerged like, um, like Tommy's green Zord and, and stomped all over the city. Yeah. So yeah, the fact is, is that I actually look at this start as crucial because this feels like a group that really does need some like proof of concept, mm-hmm. you know, as much as anyone wants to talk about the momentum that they can take from last season. And and I, I want to know, and I don't know that I've like said this, I know I've said this, but I don't know that I've like really beat it, str- like beat the drum strongly enough where the Boudreaux bump, even though it lasted for like months on end, looked to me like a complete and unsustainable mirage. And I continued to say that. Mm-hmm. The 25 games under Rick Tockett was materially different in Mm -hmm. terms of the club's five-on-five form, their underlying performance, the way that they stopped um, allowing chances, particularly off like passes from down low in the zone into the slot. That was a real problem spot for the Canucks. And by the way, those are like the dangerous, most dangerous chances because you've got the goalie moving east, east, west, and you've got the... um, You've got the guys moving east-west, but you also have the goalie moving east-west, but you also have an in-close scoring chance. There was so much that I liked from how the team played under Rick Tockett that I'm not looking at that 
even though the sample's smaller, the same way that I did the Bruce, Bruce Boudreau bump um, sort of era and saying, hey, that doesn't matter at all. I actually think there's some real positives that this team should be able to carry forward from that. There were parts of it, particularly the team's defensive play, that looked meaningfully sustainable to me. Mm-hmm. And But as much as you want to draw momentum or hope from that fact, they have to do it. And actually getting some wins under their belt, actually getting some steam in their engine to start with, man, you feel like that would go a long way mentally for a group that seems to thrive off positive reinforcement and can kind of struggle, certainly have struggled, spiraled even, when the going gets tough. Well, I think that's a huge part of it for me is this is not a team that playing together has this kind of track record of bouncing back from tough situations to draw on, right? This is not a team that can point to something in their past and say, hey, we've battled through adversity before and come together as a group. It's quite the opposite, in fact, right? So I think if you are... (laughs) Sorry, can I just note, like, what is the bar in hockey for we're a resilient group? What? It feels like it's it's on the floor. That bar is the (laughs) lowest bar in the NHL. It's like, we're a resilient group. We overcame a bad lunch today. (laughs) <laughs> but it's not like it's like Tampa Bay, right? Who's like, hey, we got swept by Columbus and we came back and won the Stanley Cup. Totally. You know what I mean? That's a resilient We can group. do anything. We Oh, we're, we're, we got off to a slow start. Who cares? We're the Tampa Bay Lightning, sure. right? They don't have anything close. That's an extreme example, right? But they don't have anything close to that to be able to draw on. And I think that's one of many reasons why avoiding the slow start is going to be so key. But to me, it's also interesting. Like, we talk so much about it. And what I wanted to get into, there's a couple things that – interest to me about the, the you know good start topic one is well how do you actually go about doing that like what does the team from a team-wide perspective do to facilitate a good start beyond just talking about it and we can get into that the other thing for me is just like from a purely process and results standpoint i mean what does it actually look like like we say good start but i mean are we saying they got to go you know like eight one and one in their first 10 games because that doesn't seem realistic to me and to get back to the resiliency point i think it's key to remember it's probably not going to be it's not going to be easy forget probably it's not going to be easy to start the season right it's not going to be easy for any team to start the season even if you have a really good start and you win a bunch of games there are going to be moments within those games where things don't go your way right where you get bad calls where you get bad breaks where you give up a lead right where things happen and your back is against the wall to have a good start forget responding if you have a bad start and how you get your season back on the rails but even within the start you're going to have to show that resiliency that's inherent and i think back to last season they were up three nothing on edmonton in edmonton and you can say well yeah but they didn't actually play that well or whatever sure they were still up three nothing and then what happens right some bad breaks go against them you know questionable non-call against quinn hughes you give up three special teams goals and the season basically never gets back on the rails after that, right? And so you got to find a way early in the season when things go against you because they will. That's hockey. It's random. Things, bad things happen. You're not going to coast to multi goal wins in every game to start the season. That's my biggest question, right? It's not just resiliency if there is a bad start, it's resiliency in the first couple weeks of the season to make sure you have an actual good start, that you don't let those moments slip away like they did last year. An NHL season lasts so long. Right? Like it's such a long season and it's so easy to overreact to what happens in small samples of games. And you can't really tell a lot about a team's true talent level, even from like 10 games. Yeah. The problem is, 
is that in the NHL with, you know, an uneven distribution of points that are awarded in each game, right? Some games are three-point games, some games are two-point games, and the incentives that teams have as they go along Mm -hmm. to, like, play more conservatively, secure that extra point, play the coin flip, right? Things sort of adjust to make it really, really hard to catch up. So while we don't necessarily know a ton about a team's true talent level in the first 10 games, teams can absolutely lose out on a playoff spot in the first 10 games. We've seen it in two consecutive or three consecutive years from the Vancouver Canucks. You don't need to be 8-1-1. What you need to not be is 2-7-1. Yeah. Right? What you need to not be is dead in the water out of the gate. And as I look through, like, if we're talking about the sort of quantitative, like, what does a good start look like? You'll, yeah. you'll never guess this, bud, but I have thoughts on this. Yes, I'm shocked. Um, the Canucks actually have a really tough schedule through that magical American Thanksgiving date when everyone sort of looks at the standings and says, well, that's it. Everyone can go home now. The playoff teams are set and are usually right, which is, you know, um, a, a deeply unfortunate thing mm-hmm. in the NHL um, sort of not, not just like lexicon, but like it's actually true. Like it's a hard and fast truth that the teams that are in a playoff spot in American at American Thanksgiving almost always make it. And man, does that reduce the drama of the remaining five months yep. of the regular season? The NHL probably should like spend not some how time I would want to that. design my league, but no, that's it's. I mean, honestly, <laughs> on the on the list of things the NHL needs to fix, like one, start the games when they're scheduled to start. Two figure out a way to make some make for like drama late in the year. Those those would be like item 1 and item 2 on my list. Anyway, that was a bit of a digression. If you look at the Canucks first 20 games, which really does take us through quite conveniently um American November 23rd yeah. and the uh, American Thanksgiving Day. It's tough. Like there's a lot of tough games in there, right? I only sort of count four games that you'd look at as like Games you can feel very safe to at least suggest that the Canucks are going to be like minus on the money line, mm-hmm. clear favorites, you know, should win. And and those games are, you know, that that rebuilding Montreal team, although Montreal played Vancouver really well. And we should note that is last season. The Montreal game is in Montreal. Second half, second of back half to back, back, back three and four as well. So, so not a, not an easy one, yeah. but like the team quality. But Montreal's bad. So, yeah. yes, Philadelphia at home, but it's a torts team early in the year. Mm hmm. Um, and then you've got San Jose twice, right? And yep. and one of those is on the road. Am I, I correct? So yes, one is on the road. So yep. four games where you feel pretty confident that the Canucks should be favored, and yet they're road games, and they're road games with at least with in at least one case like a schedule complication. Aside from that, you know, and and granted, you have what s- maybe six more or five more against your Nashville, St. Yep. Louis. Uh, Islanders, Senators tier of teams, teams that you think the Canucks should be like every bit as good as. But there's 11 games that I mark down as like difficult to open the year, like really difficult. The easiest of them would be the Flames, and and that's a Flames team I, I think is going to bounce back at least somewhat this season. Um, aside from that, like those are tough, tough games. You know, you're talking Avalanche on the road. You're talking uh, Rangers at home. Leafs on uh, the road. Leafs on the road. Like, you're talking some of the best teams in hockey um, that the Canucks will be playing in oh, three games against the Oilers. Like, you're talking a really tough schedule in that first 20. And here's the worst part about it, Jamie. On the other side of American Thanksgiving, like, their December is 
a gauntlet. A gauntlet. Like, go check the Canucks. Especially to start December, yeah. The whole thing. There's three games in it that wouldn't qualify as, like, really, really tough. Everything is brutal in that in that month with, you know, I, I guess Philly and uh, around New Year's Eve mm-hmm. and, and San know, Jose, San Jose. Right before Christmas. Yeah. But I mean, for the most part, that is a gauntlet schedule. So. I mean, I'd love to be able to say something like, hey, look, if the Canucks come back from the road to face St. Louis, right? Home opener, five games on the road. You come back in your three and four. You've put yourself in a, a position to strike once you get home. And that's more or less true. But I think by the time you get to American Thanksgiving, like this team needs to have 25, 25 plus points in my mind banked at that point in of the year. In 20 games. In 20 games. That's, it's it's a high pace. That's a very high pace. It's a high pace. But but if you look at their schedule thereafter, like you need to have those points banked because there's a there's a real chance that December kills you. Like December is proving time for this team. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to need – you don't want to be – trying to come back you know you don't want to tr- be like clawing to come back in the standings um at american thanksgiving anyway just because of the hard math of the thing but then you look at your schedule and you've got golden knights on the 30th of november flames devils wild hurricanes lightning panthers wild again dallas before christmas like that's brutal that's brutal. You cannot be in a spot where you need to be like 600 point percentage against those teams at that time of the year. That's that's not, it's not dead in the water territory. But like, I think to have that like coin flip punchers chance that we're all looking for yep. to enjoy the hockey season to to feel like this team's in a race. I really think you know the the bar for me to what I'd call like a good start. 25 points in the first 20 games. Yeah, I mean, and boy, that means you have to really make some hay early in the season. You know, I I look at it with those first two games against Edmonton, the home and home. We've talked about that, you know, the penalty kill matchup against Edmonton, but those are two really tough games. And I guess, you know, the question for me is, again, to bring it back to this idea of resiliency and can you kind of stem the tide before it gets completely out of control like, let's say you go 0-2. Let's say you don't pick up any points in those first two games against Edmonton. Which now, that's is completely realistic. Far less than ideal, but yeah, c- completely realistic. It's a possibility. I'm not saying it's a guarantee or anything. No, no, but that Oilers team... But it's a possibility. We, we have to prepare ourselves for the very real possibility that the Oilers are, like, c- going to be in contention for the President's Trophy this but year. But I think for me, it's, okay, that's a possibility. But guess what? Yeah, team, as you say, they could be in contention for the President's Trophy. We know how dangerous they are. Can you come back from a potential 0-2 start and still do what you're talking about, right? Still capitalize on the first 20 games of the season and put yourself in a position where you are, you know, at the very least right around that playoff marker at American Thanksgiving. And I think that's going to be difficult to do because there is going to be this sense of, uh-oh, here we go again, right? But that could be the task. That could be the task at hand for the players and for the coaching staff is, you know, how do you avoid – how do you prevent it from snowballing? That's the word we've used a lot, right? It seems once things – go wrong a little bit, they spiral, they snowball, they get out of control. Uh, those first two Edmonton games, it could present a similar situation, and it's going to be up for the players uh, to prevent it from turning into that again. Yeah, to be the quote-unquote resilient group that yeah. teams brand themselves as with zero evidence, right? I mean, that's what we need to see, mm-hmm. um, and that's what we're going to need to see because you're right, it's not going to be a snow day. But no. I, I do want to note this too. Like I threw 25 and 20 at you, mm-hmm. and your reaction was like, "Oh boy, that's a 
I mean, that's a hundred plus point pace. Yeah, but it's a hundred and three point pace. Yeah. It's not sure. It's not president's trophy territory. It's not even division winner territory. Still over a hundred points. That's that's a big jump for this team. But you, you you need to be there because your next ten games, yeah, are are brutal, right? Like what I, I mean. You know how it goes, right? Like, if this team is at 20 points after 20 games, right? And then I start doing the, like, the Canucks need to perform at this pace to make the playoffs, you know, the historic mm-hmm, playoff mm-hmm. bar in the Pacific Division since, uh, you know, the, the new playoff format came in is 93.7 points. And to get there, the Canucks need to do this. It's going to be higher than 103 points. Usually is. Oh, you mean if there are 20 through 20? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, like... That's the point of a good start. The point of a good start is to give yourself some breathing. Yes. Give yourself a buffer. Yeah. And then you still need to avoid, by the way, because this is the other thing. And this is what this team has really struggled with, in my opinion, watching them play. And, you know, I think about the Miller-Delia thing a Mm -hmm. little bit within this context, but by no means is that the only example. You could see it on the Canucks bench on broadcast any number of times. So, like, I really am not trying to single out one player or one incident as being evidence of this. But in that two-month stretch without Demko, when the goaltending wasn't particularly good, but by the way, the defensive play was still somehow worse. Mm -hmm. Every time these goals went in, you could see the reactions. You could see the body language. You could see the slumps. You could see the broken sticks. You could see... you, You just knew... And honestly, sometimes you could read the lips. People were just like, that's so soft! On the... People were blaming the goalies. People were blaming the goalies. But you know what? Goalie injuries happen. Like, mm-hmm. we're, the NHL teams are going to use, like, 90-plus goaltenders this year. Like, lots of teams are going to play long stretches of games with their third goaltender, some with their fourth goaltender. And you know what the difference between the good teams and the bad teams is going to be? It's going to be the teams that the teams that are good are able to go, like, 500 in that stretch. Yeah, they're not going to clean up but they're going to have the sort of stretch that doesn't kill them dead. The Canucks keep letting excuses, runs of poor form on the penalty kill, runs of poor goaltending, impact the way they compete, and that kills them dead. You know, like, for all that we've talked about the Canucks goaltending being a problem last year, the Canucks were 8-8-3 at the end of the season. Save percentage. Which is bad, by the way. That's, like, straight out of the 1980s. Like that's like where you're very bad. That's like where your goaltending goaltenders smoking at intermission bad. <laughs> but you know what? The Kings, who had 104 point, they were eight eight nine. They were eight eight like mm-hmm. fundamentally. What I want to see is this team, you know, be the quote unquote resilient group in terms of finding ways, and and I don't mean like finding ways to win. Like I don't mean finding ways to be at a President's Trophy level when there's no possible way you could be. But no matter what gets thrown at you, find ways to hold the fort, to hold the fort, just like to not have those stretches that leave absolutely no wiggle room the rest of the way, because that's how this team has started every season. And that's what's happened to this team every time a key injury has cropped up, um, a key bad break has cropped up, uh, drama outside the rink has cropped up. It feels like that saps the energy of the team. It gets blamed. Fingers start pointing and this team stops competing. And that is is what can't happen this year. We got to take a quick break here, but Liam in Calgary with an interesting text. Uh, Imagine hypothetically that the Canucks dominate the first two games. Do you think that would be enough positivity to fix the frail mentality of a team has had over the last few seasons? I mean, look, it wouldn't hurt, but my thing is... I'd be super excited. I mean, that would be be great. But 
you also, I think, have to get out of this cycle of like the mentality of the team changing dramatically based on their most recent results or their most recent five results. Totally. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of what we're talking here. It can't be, hey, we played a great game in Colorado. We feel like world beaters now. Oh, we coughed up a lead. Oh, we're down on ourselves. You have to find a way to get off that roller coaster, right? Well, and don't forget, like, th- you know, th- I don't know if you watched week one, but the Rams are the best offense in football. Right? And it's like yeah. you learn as much from one NFL game as you do from four or five NHL games. Remember the first week of last season, we were watching the Rangers just dominate play. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, maybe my Rangers fade needs to be revisited a little bit. I even said it on air mm-hmm. after fading the Rangers the entire run, their entire run to the Eastern Conference final. And then it was like a week later, I was like, LOL. I don't know why they made me question myself. That mm-hmm. team still doesn't have the two way chops. Things can happen in small samples. The Canucks may come out and dominate the Oilers, and that may help them springboard to a good start. And it also may evaporate just as quickly because two games does not a season make. No. Period. Uh, we'll take a break. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber Text line. Harmon Dial of The Athletic joins us next. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintech studio. 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Um, we'll, we'll get to Harmon Dial in just a moment here. Uh, we, we A little distracting in the studio today because... In advance of our exciting new state segment, Drancer, the crossover with Don Taylor and Rick Dollywall. We're doing a little video test. So on our monitors right now, we have a live look at the Donnie and Dolly studios, a live look at Don Taylor staring yeah. intently at his laptop it's, and Ryan Henderson talking on the phone. It's an and one mixtape in here. Just <laughs> it's very exciting. Just watching crossovers be tested. <laughs> Indeed. Remember and one mixtapes? Those were two. I those were the best. Skip to my Lou. Yeah. Still ride for that guy. Oh, so good. Uh, Ray for Alston. He made the league, right? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, he was a raptor. I'm so excited. Absolutely. Uh, anyways. Uh, now joining when I was us, 12. Now joining us right now on the line. Uh, he is a contributor at The Athletic. Our guy, Harmon Dial. Harman. Also has sick handles. Yes. What's going on, man? I definitely don't have sick handles, but I work hard defensively. I play a responsible <laughs> game, and I'm a team guy. You laugh, but that was actually my scouting report in high school basketball, so <laughs> pretty much identical to that. <laughs> um, all right, Harm, lots to get into, man. Uh, we're excited to have you back on the show. We'll start with the big news of the week. Yesterday, Quinn Hughes officially announced as the Canucks captain. What do you make of the decision and uh, and Hughes's prospects of succeeding in the role yeah i think he was an obvious logical choice i think he'll excel in the role and it's funny because in 2019-20 if you had told me watching a rookie quinn hughes that he'd be captain of this team um in just a few years i wouldn't have believed you at the time and that's not a knock on quinn as um as a person at all it's just that he's changed so much he came into the team, I think, is a pretty reserved, laid-back, sort of quiet personality, uh, not the most comfortable speaking publicly or in the media. Uh, and I think it's a testament to how much he's evolved and grown that he's gone to this point. And, and I really believe this was an intentional, concerted effort. 
especially last season. I, I really believe it was a priority for him. I remember uh, having a conversation on the road with him uh, in Philly, the first road trip of the year, and we spoke about uh, his goal to take on a bigger leadership role. And, and, and I think there was a realization that he told me straight up, hey, I'm the longest tenured def- defenseman on the blue line right now. Um, and I think he, you know, once you look at that, once you look, once he looked at the fact that, okay, I've also got the big contract, um, and I've solidified myself in his elite player. Like this is the next step because I think Quinn was really sort of upset at himself after the sophomore year where he struggled defensively. And so I think in going into 2021, 20, 22, he was so obsessed with rounding out his game defensively. Um, and once he checked off that box, then going into last season, it was, it was about, okay, there are still parts of my game. I want to improve on the ice, but a big part of my evolution. Now the, the next step is going to be off the ice. So this has been a long, this has been a sort of long intentional step. It's not as if this has just sort of happened overnight where he's the captain of, of the team. He really chipped away at it. It made a lot of strides um, last season. And I also found it particularly interesting that, uh, Rick Talkett mentioned the fact that, hey, Quinn's the guy that mixes with everybody. I, I really think that matters because uh, when I look at this team the last couple of years, I don't think it's necessarily been the tightest locker room. And I'm not saying that from a perspective of there's riffs or there's clicks and, and that sort of thing. I'm not saying there's problems. I'm just saying that when I compare it to how tight-knit the group was um, in 2019-20, again, it just sort of felt that you had older guys, whether it was Tanev, uh, Markstrom, even a guy in his mid twenties, like uh, in stature, um, where the young guys really gravitated towards them, and everybody was really connected. And I think um, this team needs more of that environment where uh, everybody mixes well with each other. And I think about little things like when you use, for example, during the silly pod Colson's first NHL road trip. Uh, taking him and, and Hoaglander out to the movies. And um, and, and so I think Quinn is popular with, with the young guys. Obviously, he's tight with Petey. Um, the older guys like him as well. And so I think um, I think it was the right pick, and uh, I'm sure he's going to be successful in the role. Harmon, what does a good start look like for the Canucks in your mind? Yeah, so for me, it's not even necessarily about playing at a playoff pace right from day one I mean that'd be ideal but when you look at the way that you know this team's schedule always starts in October it's, it's typically very road heavy and I mean it doesn't help that you start uh, first game of the season um, and, and actually the first two games of the season playing uh, Edmonton um, so I mean that's that's a really difficult uh, uh, challenge right off the bat and so to me it's just about like even if you get through the first week or two of the season and you're 500, like I mean, compared to where they've been at the last couple seasons, they just need to make sure the first week or so isn't a train wreck. Because I think once you can at least see some positives, that's when everybody can sort of loosen up a little bit and feel more confident. And 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 from there, you're just able to get over the first barrier of and, and the first hurdle of. Uh, even just the first handful of games of uh, of the season. I mean, um, like last year, I just still can't get over the fact that they had ended up, you know, having to hold a players only meeting three games into the season. Like it was that bad. And so, um, you know, uh, again, look, ideal world. We all, we'd all love them to come out of the gate racing um, and, and also a flying start, but it, there's, there's gotta be some level of, 
you know, nervousness, um, you know, pressure. Um, and, and I almost get, it's almost like sometimes when there's something that you've been dreading for a long time or, or something that uh, you're maybe nervous about, once you, you know, once you get through the initial sort of struggle and you don't spectacularly fail, it's almost as if there's a, there's a weight off your shoulders and then the rest of the way uh, you perform that much better. So, um, I mean, my biggest sort of hope is just that they don't fall flat out of their face. Yeah, you almost have to demystify it, right? Sorry to cut you off there, but you know, you build it up into your in your mind as something so terrible, and then you experience it, and it's actually not not that bad, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it's it, it's tough because um, you know every year they spend a, a fair amount of time um, uh, on the road, and 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 even when I look at um, even when I look at the this the schedule coming up, it's not again, it's not as if they have a ton of easy games. Like even when you're going to be playing Philadelphia third game of the season, like John Tortorella teams are always hyper competitive. They're tough outs in the early going. They play with energy. They're not going to give you an easy game. And then of course, um, right after that, you got Tampa and, and Florida. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be challenging. And, and, and again, I'm just hoping that, they they pick up two or three wins over the over the first handful of games. Yeah, that would be nice. Avoid the 05 and 2 start again. And you know, I, I find it really fascinating also to think about the coaching staff's input into all of this, right? We talk a lot about the players' resilience, resiliency, their mental toughness, but you know, I even think back to last year at training camp, the players talked about how they needed to get off to a good start and you know, I remember Bruce Boudreaux saying, "Okay, I want to I want to get the lines that I think are going to play an opening night together right off from day 1 at training camp." What do you think the coaching staff can do in training camp, in preseason, to put the players in a position to really hit the ground running in the regular season? Yeah, it's interesting because when I look at what happened last season, it wasn't just the start of the season. The vibes just felt off um, immediately. There were just, when you look at well, a number of different things, obviously the preseason um, started off really rough. And I remember Kent... It, one of one of their home preseason games, Boudreaux just coming in post game, and it, it was like it was as if he, they'd lost a playoff game in terms of his disappointment with um, the club's you know lack of uh, whether you want to call it effort or, or structure in that game, and then you combine it with some of the top six injuries that they had with Mikheyev and, and Besser right right off, right off the hop, um, some of the drama surrounding what happened with Rachel Dory's um, you know departure. Um, it, I just don't think it set the right tone in terms of the, the, the vibes going into the season. And I think when you look at heading into this year, you're just hoping that there isn't a whole lot of, I guess, drama and extracurricular noise going into uh, the start of the season. And so, I mean, you know, it would help health-wise if things, um, if things look promising. It would help if preseason they don't create these – um, create these storylines of, oh, they're winless three or four games in. Why do they look so off? Will it translate to the start of the season? Um, and and even when you go back to years past, I mean, in 2021, 22, there, were, there was the whole conversations around, you know, Pedersen and Hughes' contract situations. And I think um, if we could just, if we can just have like a quiet, normal training camp of preseason, I think that would go a long way and just, um, helping ease some of the tension around the team coming into, you know, when the games actually start. 
Harmon up at the Athletic at the moment. We've ranked the top 10 Canucks prospects. It, you know, going through this exercise with you, my sort of big takeaway was the club's added an awful lot of depth to this prospect pool. Uh, did that stand out to you too? And, and what impact do you think that can have in the years ahead? Yeah, it definitely did stand out to me because um, I think about a guy like uh, Danilo Klimovich. I believe last time we did those rankings, he finished, he, he ranked inside our top five. And this time he was um, towards the back half, uh, towards the end of uh, of our top 10, right? And uh, when you look at him, when you look at, um, it's it's nice to see a guy like Nils, uh, Linus Carlson being an honorable mention instead of ranking really prominently. And um, even you look at the progression of uh, a player like, Kirill Kudrytsev um, having a really strong year in the OHL and, and emerging. I mean, I'm looking at like Lucas Forsell had a promising year in the SHL and and he didn't crack her top 10. He was an honorable mention. Same thing with Philip Johansson on the back end. Like there are still some some legit prospects that um, that you know there were there were legit arguments to be had here. Um, guys like Aiden McDonough being pushed down a few more slots than usual. Uh, and I think in terms of what it means big picture is a lot of these guys that we're having conversations about, we don't expect them to have the high ceiling. Uh, it's not as if they're guys that necessarily project to be top six forwards or, or top four defensemen. But I do think it matters in terms of solidifying um, the organization's depth moving moving forward. And if you have a lot of those lottery ticket you know, bottom of the lineup type pieces, maybe one of them exceeds expectations and can be a little bit more than that. So uh, definitely, I agree with you that it was, um, it was a deeper pool than, than usual. And I also think that there were, going through this exercise, there was a pretty clear top three that, um, mm. that it sort of emerged when you look at um, uh, Will Ander, Ratu and, and LeCaramacchi. It's even, it's even nice to have LeCaramacchi as your third prospect instead of, um, instead of number one, and of course, it's been promising to see the start that he's had um, in SHL preseason action, hopefully picking up where he left off in the Allsvenska playoffs, and um, hopefully he can stay healthy and get back on track and, and have a big breakout year. Um, but yeah, there was a clear sort of top three, even at, um, even at the top end in terms of guys that have uh, a really high ceiling, at least among the skaters. So if, of course, uh, Seelaw's being a goaltender, goaltenders are, are, a lot more har- are a lot harder to sort of project and um, and, and predict, and of course, he has a promising ceiling as well. But uh, it was nice to sort of have a legit top three as well. Yeah, I'd probably call it a top four. And my concern, I think, in going through this exercise was hand wringing over who would be five and landing on Elias Pettersson, the other Elias Pettersson, DPD, which I think was the right choice. And I, I'm really impressed with what I've been able to see of him, both in um, Swedish pro league action but also at uh, development camp and yet to have missed the playoffs as frequently as the Canucks have and have him uh, a third round pick with sort of limited ceiling as a, as a top five prospect to me uh, that's still deeply concerning do you do you share those concerns uh, absolutely because as much as we can sort of praise the the overall overall depth and um, and how there are more guys that could figure to be NHL contributors down the road. Again, outside of those top three or four, there aren't enough legit sort of core pieces. I, I think that's the, that's the way to sort of uh, imagine it is who's going to be the next wave of your core. Who's going to be 
a legit driver of an offensive line? Uh, who's going to be a stud piece on the on the back end uh, for a really long time? And and you're right. After that, those first three or four names, um, it became a, a pretty thin thin crop because you know Pedersen, for example, I love the combination of the size and um, the mobility, the the mean streak that he has. But ultimately, with his puck skills being limited and and him not having much offensive upside. Um, he's probably a third pair defender if he hits, which is great. And he's obviously outperformed his draft stock. But you'd, but you'd hope that there would be uh, more more guys ahead of him that, again, can sort of push to be future top line guys, to be future top pairing defensemen. Um, so that instead of hunting for these difference makers in for agency or on the trade market, um, you can develop them internally because guys – you're not going to be able to, you know, next time, every time you need a, another top four defenseman, you can't just go out and, and pay a, a first and a second plus to get Phil Pronick, right? You can't just go out and, and trade trade a first-round pick plus every time to, to get a JT Miller. Because at, at a certain point, you're not going to, you're not going to have the, the trade chips to, to be able to go after those guys, right? And, and you're right. I, I think there's still... Um, an emphasis that needs to be placed on finding more legit difference makers, especially because this core is getting more expensive. Like mm. uh, if, you know, if, and when Elias Pedersen resigns, like that's going to be a big number. Um, especially if he goes out and has another monster campaign. Um, Philip Peronic is going to be more expensive as an RFA with arbitration rights, especially after he's going to have a lot of leverage given how much the Canucks gave up to acquire him. And, and his camp is going to know that. So, um, you know, of course, Miller's contract uh, contract extension kicking in this this year. Um, you don't have a lot of value contracts left um, on this team, even if you look a couple of years ahead, right? Like Kuzmenko in two years is going to be up, um, and and Demko doesn't have a ton of term left even. So you want to position yourself so that three, four, or five years from now, you have cheap ELC guys that can fill in as top six forwards and top four defensemen. How important is it that at least one of those top three skaters in the Canucks prospect pool, and of course, Atu Ratu, Jonathan LeCaramacki, Tom Valander, how important is it that at least one of those three guys kind of pops over the course of the next 12 months? No, it's, it's massive. Because that's going to be, even, even, on, even from a perspective of uh, the timeline of, of when those guys join, right? Of course, Rocky is a bit more of a mature prospect. But it's like a, a breakout season for one of those guys could sort of change the timeline for when they could be impactful uh, in Vancouver, right? If, if Rocky has a huge year in the AHL, uh, for example, could he be a guy that is all of a sudden pushing to be a top nine contributor next season? Um, when you look at uh, Volander, if he has, I mean, right now the way I look at it is given how much his offensive game needs to grow, I'd initially be looking at him as a guy that ideally would get two years in, in college before he turns pro. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, what if he has, uh, in a best-case scenario, if he really, really pops and it looks like he could, uh, he's, he's on an advanced uh, trajectory, maybe he's the sort of guy that, Spends a year in the NCAA, spends a year in the AHL, and then in two years he's ready to to uh, be an NHL contributor. Or even with Karamaki, he sort of fits the profile when he was drafted as as an undersized sort of skilled player who ne- who needs to fill out with a longer timeline in terms of when he could help. 
Uh, but moving to a higher league in the SHL, if, if he really breaks out, again, that cuts down um, the timeline in terms of how, you know, how long you need to wait before that type of piece is ready to, um, to join your lineup. And again, when you look at this, this sort of prospect uh, group and, um, and the team and, and its outlook over the next two, three years, there aren't a ton of sort of blue chip guys that, that you look at and go, that guy's ready right now, or, or he's only a year away. And I think that's where breakouts for one of those top three skaters could, um, could you know, hopefully really change the conversation. You know, obviously for a long time, it was such a talking point, Harmon, about the Canucks lack of defense prospects in the system. And now you look at the list up at the athletic and you can see a ton of draft picks from the last couple of years on the list on the blue line, as well as an NCAA free agent like Kita Hirose. It's obviously been a massive organization priority to restock the pipeline at that position. Does the emphasis now need to shift to the center position? Because I look at it and Atu Ratu comes in second, but outside of that, there's no centers to speak of in the top. Top 10. Do we need to see the same sort of attention now that has been paid to the blue line uh, be applied to the center position a little bit? A little bit, but honestly, they just need to f- find more potential star talent at like any position. That's the way I kind of look at it yeah. because to be a team that can legitimately challenge for the Stanley Cup, I mean, you can't just look at, for example, the Canucks' blue line situation now and go, okay, you got Hughes, you got Hironic, and, and Weiner hits, you're in a good situation, and um, we could turn our attention elsewhere. It's like, no, I mean, look at a, look at a team like Colorado winning, um, you know, win, winning the cup and what, what they had on the blue line, right? How many star pieces they had with, like, McCarr, Caves, Byram, Gerard, um, like just an embarrassment of, uh, of riches and, and how deep from one to six – uh, Vegas was. I mean, Vegas' third pair with Haig and White Cloud, uh, you know, that, that could be a second pair on a lot of NHL teams um, on top of their second pair of McNabb and, uh, and Theodore being arguably the best second pair in the NHL. So, you know, whether it's the blue line or, or I mean, even, even if you could land another sort of star winger, like we had this conversation about, uh, well, the Canucks are deep on wingers. Yeah, they're kind of deep on middle six wingers yeah. or like third line type wingers. They're not. It's not as if they're swimming in like top six wingers because you know you look at, for example, on the left wing, um, you're looking at a situation where Ilya Mikheyev is going to be coming back from uh, major ACL surgery. We don't know how how long it's going to take before he's going to be operating at full capacity. And then beyond that, you have Anthony Bavillier, who's probably on most good teams a third liner, right? Like. That's oh, not oh, Harmon, you've got you've got Phil DiGiuseppe in pole position to play top six minutes on the left side. Come on, yeah, like that's it's it, it's it, you just need more top of the lineup pieces anywhere you can get them mm. um, to get to the point of of not just being a team that's middle of the pack and can maybe squeak into the playoffs, but long term we all want this to be a team that actually contends for something meaningful, meaningful that can win playoff rounds, go deep in the postseason, and. To get to that point, you need more sort of elite talent. Is there a path, Harmon? Really quickly, I've been talking about this. I talked about it on the show yesterday. I talked about it on the morning show. And one sort of formulation that I'm that I'm trying to drive home is 
it's not that I don't think the Canucks can make the playoffs this year. I absolutely think there's a scenario where their goaltending bounces back, their penalty kill improves just enough, and they sustain the form, the two-way form they showed under Tockett, um, especially with the blue line enhancements, and are, are a playoff team. My concern is I don't know that I see a path given the strength of the prospect profile, uh, given all of the factors you discussed with the core getting more expensive for them to level up into that great team that you just described. What am I missing? No, I mean, you're, uh, you're bang on there. That's been the biggest concern. I mean, forget about this regime, even going back to the Jim, ben- Jim Benning era, uh, Jim Benning era and how quickly they were sort of looking to, um, looking to accelerate. And, and if anything, I remember the conversation around then because it was more promising at the time. The core was even younger and the, and the cap concerns weren't, um, you know, uh, weren't as sort of grave in some circumstances to where it was like, okay, we, we agree that this team can sort of consistently make the playoffs, but it's going to be how do you get to the elite level of being a top five, six, seven team in the NHL? And now you're looking at it and, and, and it's almost been a struggle to even get to the point where, they are a consistent playoff team, and, and you're right. Like they're the, the way the Western Conference is positioned, especially if Calgary or, or Winnipeg end up selling some of their pending UFA pieces, whether it's before the start of the season or uh, or at the deadline or or whenever. Um, there's a legit path for the Canucks to make the playoffs, but it's that point of okay, well, how are you going to take the step beyond that? And, and the step beyond that is. Um, is is really all that sort of matters in terms of maximizing this core's um, potential because nobody wants to end up in the situation where you're like Minnesota, um, where yeah every every year you're uh, you know you're a good team you're consistent making the playoffs but you can't take the next step and and I look at a Minnesota type situation and, and I mean even now I'm looking at it as as a case of like it's still going to be a challenge to get to the point where you're a team that's in the playoffs every year, where, where that's, where that's the sort of expectation, let alone then the tier above that, where it's like now, now every year you're in the conversation to be contending for, for a cup again, because of um, the, the prospect pool situation and, and, and because of, uh, uh, the lack of cap space and, and even trade assets, right? Uh, how many more expendable trade chips do the Canucks have for, let's say, next offseason, right? If, um, if if the right defenseman came along or the right impact centerman or, or whatever it is, um, you know, what expendable trade chips do the Canucks have to, to go out and get those guys without robbing more first-round picks um, and creating a further deficit with the with the prospect pipeline? So it's it's going to be a really difficult sort of um, needle needle to thread and um, it's going to require a lot of creativity and, and management having to find, you know, talent from unexpected sources, like when they, when, when they found Kuzmanko. Mm-hmm. Harm, great to have you back on the show, man. Great to talk with you. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks guys. That is Harmon Dial of The Athletic joining us here on Canucks Talk. We will take a break. Lots more to come, uh, including the Canucks announcing the roster for the Young Stars Tournament in Penticton. Get your text in as well, 650-650. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shaw. Your home for Canucks coverage on weekdays and postgame. Available anytime on podcast. It's been so long since I've been to a party, but the sitter's waiting. I can't drink like I used to, and I probably shouldn't drive. But I don't know anyone who can give me a ride. Maybe if I drive slow? 
Safety concerns discourage women who have been drinking from taking a ride with someone they don't know. You leaving, Kate? My sister's picking me up. We could take you home. Drunk driving is a woman's issue, too. Learn how to reduce the risk at changetheconversation.ca. How does a car save you time and money? Starting at just $31,645 after rebates, the Mazda MX-30 is already the lowest-priced electric vehicle on the market. And with payments of $233 biweekly at Freeway Mazda, you could be spending less on the car than you do on gas now. Plus, you get to use the HOV lane, saving you time with five-year unlimited kilometer warranty and two years maintenance included. Freeway Mazda in Guildford on a corner of 104th Avenue and 154th Street. You know that feeling? Short-handed breakaway. Elias Pedersen scores. The one you've been waiting for months to get back. It's your chance to grab hold of that feeling again. Now that your Vancouver Canucks are back with a young and talented core, ready to take the team to the next level. Back to Hughes, lets it go, scores! Secure your seats for Canucks season tickets, starting from just six payments of $121. Visit Canucks.com slash membership to lock in that feeling now. Attention all winter warriors. Yes, we realize it's summer, but Invictus Professional Snowfighters is recruiting a truck like big paydays join the invictus team and unleash your inner snowfighter this winter jobs and training provided and pay of course learn more at invictussnowfighters.com invictus snowfighters turning snow days into snow pays invictus professional snowfighters is not responsible for any sudden urges to build snow forts or engage in snowball fights please snow fight responsibly not to get too personal but when it comes to financial services and insurance Cooperators does just that, like the mutual funds or a mystery plan, or the I'm definitely retiring early plan, even the hun, that old tree looks pretty unstable plan. Your future is personal. Your plans should be too. Give us a call today. Cooperators, investing in your future together. Mutual funds related investment products are offered through Cooperators Financial Investment Services, Inc. Terms and conditions apply. Jack 96.9 is playing whatever. Yeah, that means you might hear this. 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 And even this. I like the way you work it. Hitting the most important topics for Vancouver sports fans. The People's Show with Vic Nazar. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech Studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, not exactly as momentous as naming the 15th captain in franchise history, but the Canucks did uh, announce a little bit of news today, uh, making official their roster for the Young Stars tournament coming up in Penticton. Just days away now, Drancer. Getting going September 15th. That's Friday 
in Penticton. And I mean, first of all, and we've talked to uh, our guy, Jonathan Wall, about this, who's still involved in the tournament. Really great just to see the tournament become a fixture again on the NHL calendar for the Canucks for the Western Canadian teams. And, you know, looking at the roster, this is always such an interesting event because you have such a a spectrum of players experience levels <laughs> no kidding talent age all of that right like even just looking at the Canucks roster you have everything from you know 19 year old year old undrafted OHL invites to 25 year old guys who've played in the NHL and Akito Hirose right Aiden McDonough who played in the NHL he's 24 year. 24 excuse he's me. 24 he's still called or eligible my dude <laughs> um you know Atu Ratu, who played a bunch in the NHL last year. Like, there's such a big gulf between the guys who have pro experience, key AHL players, and and everyone else at the roster. It really makes things interesting. I would think the Canucks are going to do very well at this tournament, by the way. I mean, the thing is, the thing to watch is, like, a guy like Akito Hirose is going to eat everybody's lunch. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're a 19-year-old or 20-year-old, like, recent third-round pick out of Major Junior, and you're trying to take Hirose wide or take the body on Hirose or try and forecheck on Hirose, like, he's going to steal your lunch money. Like, not even close. We saw, we saw him do it against NHL players in the spring. Like, mm-hmm. he's going to eat their lunch money. And the, the really, the only question is, does he just get one game, right? Like, right. Hirose might just get one game, and they'll be like, okay, we need to see what you do at main camp, bud. Yeah. <laughs> Not risk an injury here. So that's sort of the the one thing. With Hirose in the lineup, though, I think this team's going to be really hard to beat given the level of experience up and down their lineup. Um, but, you know, I look through, like, even Klimovich, like, this is his third time at the tournament. Mm-hmm. He's a three-year AHL pro now. Like, he's had two AHL, full AHL seasons yeah. under his belt. I look at, like, Arshdie Baines was a really, was a good AHL player yeah. last year, And right? he's 23, right? Yeah. And then Aiden McDonough's 23 and, you know, was one of the top players in NCAA last year in the last two years, frankly. So, um, yeah, I mean, this team is going to be good. They they should win a bunch of their games. Even, even um, Tolapilo, right? Like, they have... Their goaltender's not a major junior prospect. Mm-hmm. Their goalie's like a multi-year pro who was the best goal- goalie in the Alsvenskan last year. Like th- this is going to be a this is going to be a team that be- wins a lot of games in Penticton, especially if they play their best, which I'm sure they won't. By the way, a um, couple interesting things to monitor going into this tournament. I'm told by some of my industry scouts uh, that there was something of a Bedard effect down roster. In the WHL this year. All right. And so a lot of the dub players, like a lot of the guys who in other years may have gone undrafted and been like possible invites or possible, um, you know, uh, Chase Waters types for mm-hmm. the Canucks, Tristan Nielsen types for the Canucks um, got snapped up. They got drafted in, in a way that they haven't in previous years. And that might result in there being sort of fewer or somewhat fewer, like, really interesting invites at some of these uh, prospect tournaments, especially the one based in, in Western Canada, where, where obviously, you know, dub invites would prefer to go. Yeah. So that's a, that's a factor that's sort of interesting because we've seen a lot of those players pop over the years at Penticton. Um, you know, some of the guys that I'm looking for overall, uh, like, most interested to see overall, like, I'm really interested to see... Vilmer Ulrichsen mm-hmm. in a more structured environment than development camp. The more structured, but still not 
you know, it's it's a lot more. <laughs> it is a lot more than development. It, camp. It's a lot more structured simply because of the time of year, right? right. If you're a pro right. hockey player or if you're a major junior, if you're serious, um, you know, uh, like NHL drafted prospect, you put in work all August for this moment to right. be like at your peak when the season begins and when you're like fighting for a lineup spot and fighting to make an impression. Whereas development camp in July, you're like fresh off a couple weeks hanging out and then like maybe you skate a little bit so that you look good at the combine and then you know you go hang out in Nashville with your friends and then mm. it's celebration time and then boom you're on the ice and just trying not to vomit as you do the the grouse grind right I mean it's a it's a totally different moment in the year um, so it's more structured from a preparation standpoint at the very least even though you're right these are often quite uh, quite shinny like uh, games where, where the systems plays pretty uh, elementary um, at the end of the day, this guy's so big. He's just so big. He's so gangly and he has puck skills and he has some knowledge of how to use his body. It's just that I, I, he hasn't grown into his body yet. He, he hasn't quite put together all of the coordination, um, but you, you know, there's something in there. There's something there. And I'm really curious to see what he looks like in this environment. I'd expect Klimovich, like Klimovich, McDonough, um, and um, Josh Bloom types, mm -hmm. Max Sasson, Hirose, they should dominate. Yeah, like Baines, they should, I would put in there. Baines, oh, yep. ba absolutely. Like, these guys should be dominant at this. Um, and, and probably the guy with the most stakes, actually, is Bloom. And, and that's sort of a name to bear in mind here as we go through Canucks prospect camp, as we go through Canucks training camp, even. Like, Josh Bloom is one of the few young players in the Canucks system where there's some suspense like you know mcdonough and Hirose types are like dark horses to make the nhl roster mm -hmm. so i'm not diminishing that they could they could really hit and have strong camps and you know the, the rewards could be hundreds of thousands of dollars but for bloom who's signed he's still at an age where you could go back to the ontario hockey league and be an overage player or you could start your pro, pro career and start playing in Abbotsford. I would expect Abbotsford's the Canucks' preferred route, given all that they've invested in player development. But but there's still something to earn here. And a good showing at Penticton to follow up on a really good showing for him at Canucks Dev Camp this summer, I think would go a long way toward putting him on the front foot as he goes through Canucks training camp. So so Bloom would be, you know, one of those guys with like a little bit extra. Yeah. Um a, a little bit extra fire in his belly, I'd assume, as this tournament. Well, gets a lot underway. of the other guys you're talking about, right? Ratu, Baines, Klimovich. You know, Klimovich maybe a little bit, but they have very clearly there's clear roles for them available in Abbotsford, yeah. right? You know what I mean? It's like you're we're going to rely on you. You're going to be workhorses for us. Hirose if he ends yeah. up in Abbotsford. Well, Johan Philip Johansson is another name, and right? And you'd love to see them crash the party at yeah. the NHL level, but you know, that's that's you can only do so much. Bloom is a tier below that where he probably still has to fight and carve out that role in totally. Abbotsford. You know 100%. what I mean? Just because it's his, he's making that jump, so it's not going to be there for him. He has to fight and earn it. I think he does, by the way. I think I think we're going to see him play bottom 6 Abbotsford minutes and I, I I think there's a lot of regard for him internally and and there probably should be. He's he's pretty intriguing. 
Uh, but he'd be the sort of the guy, I think, with like the most to gain from an environment like this. The other name that I'm going to be, I'm not going to be at the tournament, but I'm going to be very curious to uh, to see how they do is a really interesting name on the blue line in their in their prospect rankings, which is Kirill uh, Kudratsev, whose name always gives me fits. But <laughs> it, 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 so, so the Russian defenseman out of the OHL, who's a seventh round pick, but has outperformed that draft slot by a lot since they picked him. I've gotten in the habit of really pronouncing the first V in his name. Okay. Kudrev, Kudreyavsev. Okay. And the reason is that I'm never going to ever be able to re- write it. Right. If I don't say that. So whether it's right or not, that's what I'm going to need to do for my own survival. <laughs> um, we had him sixth in our prospect ranking. Like we had him, we had him ranked the highest of any Canucks player other than Ratu who's attending this tournament. And I think that's completely justified. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who really popped last year, like popped at a level where you really can't ignore it a- a- anymore. Um, the scoring profile, the size profile, the skating ability, the transition ability, how contemporary his game looks like this guy right behind Villander and Pedersen. This guy's the next best Canucks prospect um, on the blue line and, and is a really, really interesting player. So yeah, I I'd expect him to be a, a standout and, and he's, a, a, he's in that range where it's not as if he's, you know, an AHL vet or a guy, you know, he's not 23 or 24. He's at the age where you can write it off as a prospect tournament, but if he pops and looks good against this competition, I think that means something, right? Because he's a little bit younger than a lot of the guys are going to be there, you know, playing in the junior league in OHL. This is a meaningful step up in competition as opposed to, you know, Aiden McDonough and Akito Hirose, where they're coming down in the competition level to play in this tournament. But that, that makes it an interesting uh, venue for him. He's young. He was young for his draft year, right? I mean, this is a guy who's going to turn 20 in February, yeah. right? Like he's playing... He, That's, you know, <laughs> he was drafted two years ago, and yeah. yet he's still going to spend most of this season as a 19-year-old player. Um, and he was, you know, a finalist for best defenseman in the Eastern Conference of the OHL last year. I would expect, like, I think reasonable expectations based on his accelerated development at this point is, like, this guy has a chance, uh, depending on what the Ducks do with Pavel Minchukov, of course, to be one of if not the very best defenseman in the OHL this year and 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 that's not like an unreasonable expectation given the growth in his game over the past 18 months this guy's a hot shot riser and 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 a guy worth paying attention to Kudre Avsev Kudre Avsev there we go I'll learn it eventually yeah because yes I'm uh, very interested to now see learn what to spell he can it but... do. oh boy <laughs> can I just have a few of those I was like typing up the list into my notes and like Brustevich and Kudrasev when, I was when, like, oh. when I used to cover the whole league uh, back in my days at the score the Paul Stasny Right, mm-hmm. which has the out of place T mm-hmm. in his last name, mm-hmm. Matt Duchesne, yes. which has like the completely counterintuitive S uh, C location in his name, and then Ryan O'Reilly, where the Riley is spelt differently than you'd, you'd assume. They were all like centers on that Colorado Avalanche team that had that miracle season, and they drove me nuts. <laughs> I literally like made a document that was just like Avalanche center spellings. Yeah. Uh, that's important. Important stuff. Very important. That, Crucial. that is very frustrating, though. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Now, while we're speaking of some of the young players in the organization here, this text came in unsigned, uh, talking about uh, Niels Hoaglander saying that uh, uh, the texter says, I think Hoaglander has the door wide open to ride 
with Kuzmenko and Petey. He goes on to say, I'm worried about wing despite the crowd. Uh, Kuzmenko is the only true top six winger. There's a lot of guys in the middle six and in the bottom six. He's also concerned about Vasily Pod Colson. And there's a couple of interesting things in there for me. I mean, one is, and, and Harm brought this up as well when we were talking to him, right? As much as there is a, a glut in wingers in terms of numbers, there's also big question marks around most of the wingers. And, you know, if you're, if you're listing guys that you feel really good about having in the top six or let alone on a top line, there's not that many of them. So I think that's fascinating. It's gonna be really interesting to see which wingers step up and kind of take those opportunities. And then, you know, as we start to look ahead to training camp and, you know, we've still got uh, 10 days or so before training camp really gets going. We've got lots of time to get into these questions, but Niels Hoaglander and Vasily Podkolzin are going to be two of the most fascinating players to watch come training camp, come the preseason. And I think for a few reasons, I mean, obviously we know the type of upside and the potential that these players have. If you're trying to forecast ways where the Canucks could exceed expectations, one of those players claiming a spot in the lineup and taking a big jump forward and really being productive, that could go a long way. The other thing that's fascinating for me, <laughs> I mean, you know how I feel about Niels Hoaglander. Yeah. But the other thing that's fascinating for me he is can definitely do it. So we talked in the first segment about, okay, the team has to get off to a good start. And I'm very interested to see how that impacts Hoaglander and Pod Colson and their mm. role on the team, right? Did, how how much patience or flexibility will Rick Tockett and the coaching staff have with those players? Because the upside, like Niels Hoaglander and, and Vasily Pod Colson, they have a lot more upside than some of the other winger names we're going to be talking about. But if the team feels so under the gun to get off to a good start, right? Are they going to be able to carve out that playing time, carve out those roles where they can grow into that up, upside this year? You can't run a bench just to make the playoffs. Like, if you're Rick Tockett, right? And by the way, I'm not saying he will. But if your goal is to maximize what this team can do over the course of the next 12 months, you have to keep an eye on the fact that, like, hey, like we need Demko to be rested for the playoffs if mm -hmm. we're going to have a shot to punch our ticket, right? We're going to need a Hoaglander or a Pod Colson, and ideally both, to punch well above their weight once the going gets tough in the postseason. And Pod Colson in particular, because, man, do you need size up front. Like that is, the Canucks are so undersized up front. Mm -hmm. And Pod Colson, especially if he is able to pop and play, you know, that heavy press top six role that I often talk about for him, like, man, that's a game changer for this team. That's, you know, that's a um, arrow to the heart of their biggest need. So you have to, I think, go about managing your bench and your roster this season, not just like fearfully, not just to like avoid the bad start, but with an eye toward what could be achieved down the line if these guys are managed right. I I've said it before and I'll say it again. Like you've got Teddy Bluger, right? You've got guys like D Giuseppe and, and Dakota Joshua who are super reliable. And I'd love to see them form a fourth line that's counted on to be like an energy line, stack some heavy shifts one on top of the other, wear down some opposition defenders, throw the body, pitch in a bit of offense, but mostly just give you safe minutes mm -hmm. and give them, you know, eight to 12 minutes a night. And it's like secure and safe. And no matter what pod Colson's always on that line, what I really don't want to see them do with pod Colson, like, cause let's be real. 
this team is wasted now. Certainly a year of Pod Colson's development, and arguably two with Niels Hoaglander. Although with Hoaglander, I would at least note that um, it does feel to me still like Hoaglander just sort of got um, like doghoused by one coach. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like we've seen anything other than that happen to this point. And I think if you're saying that like Hoaglander's failed beyond that over the last two seasons, that's not really fair. Hasn't played for Taki yet. Was clearly Vancouver's best player when he went down to the American League. Um, had a remarkable first, you know, 100 games or certainly 90 games in the NHL under Travis Green. Clearly Boudreaux didn't have time for, for his, um, or like patience for some of the holes in his game. His puck management issues, some of the defensive gaps in his game. So like, I don't think he's failed yet. I just think he struggled to ingratiate himself with one coach. And, and guess what? That can happen to anybody. Like, that can happen to lots of players. That can happen to veteran players. So, you know, Hoaglander's still a guy I'm high on. Pod Colson's usage, though, I think was far more inconsistent, even in that first season when he kind of popped toward the end of the yeah. year um, on that line with, like, Miller. Uh, you know, he played really well toward the end of that season. Sophomore year, the usage was just all over the place. And I, I just want to see this guy have a lot of run in a consistent bottom of the lineup role where he knows what's coming to him and he can kind of adjust and begin to like recognize the patterns that he needs to recognize to be truly impactful at the NHL level. I I think it's incumbent on this team, given the draft capital invested in him, given how unique his profile is, given the flashes that we've seen and the responsibility. It's not like with pod Colson, he's not, reliable defensively. It's not like he's hurting you. Mm-hmm. You know, like, at least with Hoaglander, you know, if if Boudreaux's argument is, hey, the guy's not managing the puck well enough and he's not in the right place defensively, it's like, okay, I can see that from a coach's perspective. But Colson's always in the right spot defensively. He's just maybe not playing, you know, as, as Tockett puts it, instinctive enough or not playing dynamically enough in terms of his offensive game. But, like, he's not going to hurt you on a, a fourth-line right-wing spot. Just leave him there. Leave him there and give him some consistency. The Hoaglander stuff, to me anyway, will sort itself out. Based, He'll find his level based on where his game's at. But Pod Colson, I think this club needs to make a really concerted effort to put him in a position to get really, really comfortable at the NHL level because I just don't think they've done that well enough to this point in his career. In contrast with Hoaglander, who at least got like 70 games playing like every night with yeah. Pearson and Horvat, right? Yeah. Like You, you got to give that guy that diet and then and then see what they are. Like, let... He hasn't, he hasn't been given a chance to succeed. He hasn't been given a chance to fail either. And, and that's what I want to see this year. Yeah, and at least with Pud Colson, I mean, you'd love to find a way to kind of check both boxes at once, right? Where he's helping you in the lineup on a nightly basis, but you're also putting him in a position to succeed even more so down the road and help you down the road. And I think that's kind of what your proposal is getting at, right? Give him that comfortable spot where you know his defensive reliability and the fact that for a young player you can trust him and you're putting him with Teddy Bluger who's you know a veteran defensive center you can play him in those spots and hopefully that reliable role gets him more comfortable and you start to see a little bit of the offense and and the upside come later on in the season potentially um three putt Shane texts in what makes you think talk it will think differently on Hoaglander than Green or Boudreaux. So, I mean, well, Green, sorry, sorry. Green, well, Green put Hoaglander in a top six position in his fir- coming out of his first NHL training camp. Now, I think Green also had some well, concerns about his sorry. top management and his defensive. I think Green rolled his eyes at anyone clamoring for Hoaglander to get penalty killing ice time. But, I, but Ho- uh, Hoaglander was right in the top six, mm-hmm. held down that role, 
and was given it consistently. Like, Green had a lot of time for a guy who won battles like that and worked like that. If you're a fan of North-South hockey, if you want wall guys... Hoagland, like well, and that's and Taze Five uh, hits us up on Twitter. He says because of Hoaglander's ability to play with energy and play a little reckless, he'll get more leash talk. It will be looking for those dogs. It's probably what he wants to see from Pods I, too. I'm pretty sure Hoaglander is Swedish for wall guy. <laughs> like I'm pretty confident that that's a direct translation. So, I mean, look, the stylistic fit to me on on Hoaglander talk it is like match made in heaven one of the big reasons that i'd be bullish on hoaglander's opportunity going into the season is i just think the way that hoaglander plays um is is going to immediately appeal instinctively mm-hmm. to to talk it and and honestly maybe in a way that pod colson's more sort of deliberate thoughtful game won't uh unless sort of pod colson can do not to steal canucks jargon but unless pod colson can learn to play a bit uncomfortably um just just the last thing on this people will mention well talk it like size in his lineup and they're right but talk it's also a big garland fan like mm. uh, you don't need to be a big player f- to get a big opportunity under rick talk I-, I just think the stylistic fit there like that's that's honestly an under the radar storyline to watch if, if i was like um pr- prognosticating this from like a fantasy breakout perspective like I, you know, Hoaglander would be like my late round flyer that I'd keep an eye on because I think there 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 could be an outsized opportunity available to him, especially given uncertainty around McKay's well, status. I was just going to say that the opportunity to earn not just a roster spot, a lineup spot, but potentially like a pretty good one, like a position next to Elias Patterson or JT Miller with McKayev potentially not starting the season like that's on the table. He can uh, he they can have the wakeboarding line. With uh, with Kuzmenko and Pedersen, the the wakeboard friends, the wakeboarding line, yeah. the wakeboard friends, the <laughs> wakeboard friends, the WBF. <laughs> not, okay. not sure that's going down in Canucks lore. Yeah, well, and I don't think the wakeboarding line is either. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to coin a phrase or nickname a line, but just watch for it. Watch for it. Yeah, that's all I'm it's, saying. Uh, those, anyways, those are good, two guys that I'm going to be uh, really, really zoned in on once training camp comes around. Final segment of the show coming up. Keep your texts coming in. Uh, lots of good ones in the inbox. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, we are back after this here on Sportsnet 650. It is Canucks Talk final segment of the day here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd. It's Thomas Drance. Live from the Kintech Studio, 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, it feels obviously like hockey season because we're back on the air and, you know, guys are skating at UBC, Penticton right around the corner. It was a big day for me personally. First day that also I, it's like drizzling. Well, inside. I was just going to say yeah. first day that I broke out uh, a flannel lad flannel shirt <laughs> first and not the last. I was getting roasted for it in the uh, in the Canucks talk group chat and also in the bullpen here at Sportsnet 650. Like, look, before every summer, I take out all of my plaid flannel shirts from my my dresser and put in my polos. 
Okay, and then I wear those all summer. And then Man, this when, is the dad when fall rolls around, I do the opposite. Dad, this is dad this corner. This is how it goes. My yes, goodness. it is. But the shoulder season is awkward for me. Because like tomorrow it's gonna be back to like short sleeve weather. I don't like it. I don't I, care for it. I load it up on like shackets so that I can I get through shoulder season. Hate the word shacket. It's a bad word. I I think it was the spring or maybe even last fall. I was like, I need a jacket. I'm going to go to the mall and buy a jacket. And every store I go into, it's like, here's our new shackets for the year. I was like, what is this? I just want a jacket. Just sell me a jacket. And no one ever wears them as shirts. They're clearly jackets. No, like, would you call this a jacket? What I'm wearing? No, but I wouldn't call it a jacket either. It's, it's a, a shirt. It's, it's a, clearly it's a shirt. more a coat than a shirt. No, it's not. Yes, it is. It absolutely is not. Uh, absolutely. More of a more of a coat than a shirt. Hey, this is really good uh, radio. Uh, Chef Swagger. <laughs> it, it's, uh, hey, Chef Swagger from Hell's Kitchen. When does the bear sweater make its season debut? I can't wait for sweater season. I'm, I'm, I'm hyped already. When, when you wear the bear sweater going forward, I'm going to refer to you as Chef. <laughs> the entire, uh, the yes, entire program. <laughs> I've decided. I like it. Uh, 650, 650, as mentioned, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I did want to address this quickly. Liam in Calgary, uh, he says, I hate to bring him up again, but we are talking about wingers. What about Tanner Pearson? And Tanner Pearson, I mean, in very, very, very good news, has been a fixture at the Canucks UBC skates uh, so far. Loved in September, it. which is amazing. And, you know, we've heard, I forget exactly when it was. Was it around the draft that Patrick Alvin said they were anticipating him being ready for uh, for training camp? And, you know, that was great to hear at the time, but there's still, I think, a healthy amount of skepticism given how difficult the road back for Tanner Pearson has been. But now, you know, I mean, he's here. He's participating in these skates. Again, I'm not going to say, and therefore, you know, the, the recovery is over. He's back. It's it's he's good to go. But it's certainly it feels a lot more real now seeing him out there with his teammates, which, first of all, it must just feel amazing for him and for his teammates. Uh, but it feels a lot more real now than it did earlier in the summer. And look, I have no idea what to expect in terms of how he could fit in the lineup, how like what's his role on the team and all of those things. But I think it is fair to start taking those sorts of questions more seriously and thinking about them more seriously now than it was a couple months ago. Well, I've been personally, like personally, I've been taking it pretty seriously for a while because of the cap ramifications. Yeah. Right. If Tanner Pearson is not LTI eligible to begin the season and Ilya Mikheyev is ready to return or is not so far away that he's an option to go on LTI. Because remember, you go on LTI, you miss 10 games, mm -hmm. right? So if you get to, you know, Canadian Thanksgiving and the Canucks have to move from off-season to in-season cap and submit an opening night 23-man that's cap compliant, right? All of a sudden, you're in a position where you you may not want Mikheyev on LTI because mm -hmm. he's too important to your team and, and you're going to be able to get him back for the Nashville game six games into the season or the St. Louis game seven games into the season. So LTI is not the direction you want to go. Well, now the Canucks have some really tough choices to make and some sort of, you know, diff difficult, complicated juggling to do to set a compliant roster. Now, I'm sure because they did it last year with, with Riley Stillman, right, and Jason Dickinson, that the Canucks will try to explore their options on the trade market. We've seen in consecutive years the Canucks make a trade right before um, sort of 
the end of uh, of training camp, the beginning of the season, right before this roster deadline, where you know the Yolevi, um, right, Yuho Lamico deal the year before. It's it's a pretty busy time for teams generally. I, I also think mining the waiver wire at this time of year is like really good policy. I think the Canucks have left too much change under the couch cu- couch cushions. Couch, couch cushions. cushions. There you go. Wow, I didn't realize that was a tongue twister until just this moment. Um, over the years, right? Like, look at the Florida Panthers and what they've been able to do with Josh Mahura and uh, Gustav Forsling, and I mean, they've legitimately been able to find, you know, bottom of the bottom of the end of the lineup defensemen in droves. Uh, Juleson they acquired that way as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I'd love to see the Canucks have some roster flexibility. So I'm not precluding the possibility of a trade made right. by Canucks management over the course of the next four weeks. However. I still think the most likely outcome here is that the Canucks roll with a 22-man roster to open the season and that they reassign or waive or trade a guy who makes at least 1.05 million. But but realistically, it's the 1.15 million that you can bury in the American League. That's the relevant number here. One of the high-salaried guys. Tanner Pearson, to me is the guy I'm most curious to see at camp because I would suspect that he's got the like most daunting uphill climb to make the lineup. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's great that he's healthy and can resume his playing career, and I think that's fantastic. But I do think he's going to have to make a really strong case for inclusion because in a lot of ways, he's the most natural candidate to be, to, sent be, down. to be sent down. Well, just because he hasn't factored, he, he almost feels extra in a way because he hasn't. You haven't factored to requirements. You haven't factored him into your plans at all, right? And there's also just not a lot of real candidates in that kind of salary sweet spot that you look at as you would be like excited to send down, like Niels Hoaglander. No, no need no, waivers. Too valuable an asset, right? You'd trade so, him before you resign. Exactly, him. right? So, but. Outside of that, then, you know, you just signed Pew Suter. He's at 1.6, like Teddy Bluger's at 1.9. Then it, then you get into guys who are a lot more expensive than that, and you probably have bigger hopes for. Uh, and then a lot of the other forwards are, are below that. Dakota Joshua, Phil DiGiuseppe, you know, Sheldon Dries. They're well below that magic number that you're talking about. Well, and you've got the backloaded deal, right? So that that's another thing to factor in here. Like Tanner Pearson might have a $3.25 million cap hit, but he's due uh, $2.75 million in base salary, right? Uh, 4.25 in total salary, although 1.5 million of that is in signing bonus, which which presumably will be paid out this week if it hasn't already. So, you know, you sort of look at um, the investment there and think, boy, that that would be a tough pill to swallow. And mm-hmm. yet, you know, when you look at the numbers and you look at the candidates and you draw out the most likely lines and you think about, you know, I, I mean, Pod Colson's waiver exempt, Hoaglander's not, so maybe it's Pod Colson who gets the short end of the straw, but man, that would be a blow to this team. You think about Dakota Joshua and how impressive he was last season. Like, surely with his speed and size combination, oh, yeah. this team needs him. Um, you know, you, you, then you get to Phil DiGiuseppe, who's clearly, uh, you know, given himself a lot of momentum going into camp because he clearly has the attention and regard of Rick Tockett. Um you know, it, it it's going to be really competitive. Uh, so, you know, I'm really happy to see Pearson be healthy. I think that's a great development for him. That's a great development mm-hmm. for this hockey club. Um, and yet, 
my instant reaction to it, like my first gut reaction take to it is, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder how, what level is he going to have to be at to actually make this team? Because I think it's going to be a very high bar to clear. Uh, I agree. Now, I will also note that there's a long way to go between now and when they set the roster for opening lineup. And you know, how often do we see injuries crop up in training camp or the preseason that can dramatically change your cap calculations and how you know what you want to do, who you want to send down, right? So they have a little bit of time here, as you say, also those few days before the season are such a busy time around the NHL. That's, you know, teams wait for that reason until they're kind of forced to make these final moves. Um, uh, I want to note, I want to uh, just tackle one from the inbox mm-hmm. um, is clay asks, is there a chance Myers still moves? Has the bonus been confirmed paid? Um, you know, s- similarly to what I just said about Pearson, if it hasn't been paid already, it will be this week. Um, my understanding with how the Canucks used to do signing bonus deals was mid-September. So I, I would assume that if Myers' bonus hasn't been paid yet, it will be this week. And there are only four teams in the NHL that have the cap space to take on $6 million. The Nashville Predators, who are fully loaded on the back end. The Buffalo Sabres, who are fully loaded on the back end. The Chicago Blackhawks, hey, that could be an interesting one because they like you know, expiring guys mm. who are good citizens and good in the room. And Myers certainly fits the bill there and the Anaheim ducks uh, who are pretty much fully loaded on the blue line. So really hard to make a trade when there's only one team that you kind of have to squint and say, Hey, maybe there's a fit there. And even there you'd think Chicago would hope to have higher leverage ways to utilize their cap space. If they keep it in season, especially because remember you know, as much as fans talk about like teams exceeding the cap by LTI, right? One of my least favorite talking points uh-huh. that that happens, especially when Vegas did it, and it was like all LTI money for Robin Leonard. You know, like there was like one ad that they were able to do because of Mark Stone on LTI, but it wasn't like a significant salary added. Anyway, um, as much as that's true, also what you can do if you're a team that's well below the cap like Chicago is, is you can toll daily space oh, yeah. all it, season long. It multiplies in a hurry by the time you get to the deadline. Absolutely. Like th- there is absolutely a world where Chicago, if they want to manage it a certain way, can have, you know, and, and I'm talking like a truly astronomical number, like yes. 50 million yes. plus in, in available true value cap space uh, on deadline day. And then... Surely, if you want, you can solve a lot of problems for a lot of contenders that would like to make an awful lot of moves, and you do that, you know, probably probably net a ton of futures. Um, so Chicago's, you know, the only the market to move a, a salary as big as Myers, I suspect, is going to be very difficult. I remain well, convinced that he's most likely to move ahead of the deadline well, that's the, yeah, like, as opposed I, to in I, the next I think people, there's been this almost excitement of, oh, hey, the bonus is almost paid. They're going to be able to trade him. But first of all, as you say, the market is probably isn't there. But I also, like, at this point in the calendar, what's the big impetus for the Canucks to be desperate to move Tyler Myers, right? It's not as if... It's one thing to do it at the draft when you clear six million in space going into free agency. But right now, I mean, yeah, potentially there's a a complication for the salary cap related to Tanner Pearson. And maybe, you know, you need to free up some cap space. But it's not as if you're going to open up this big chunk of salary cap space and immediately go out and make your team better. If you trade Tyler Myers, in fact, you're making your team worse because he's going to play a 
a fairly significant role on your blue line for you. So the thing for me is like, even if there were 10 teams that had the salary cap space to trade for Tyler Myers, I don't think it would be a slam dunk that he gets moved before the season. They they're trying to make the playoffs. They want him. They don't want to be shipping him out and plugging somebody from the AHL into his spot right now. I have a hot take too. Have I ever done this hot take? I don't know. I'm have, I, have I ever done the perfect team for Tyler Myers take? I don't think so. Oh, okay. You ready for this? Sure. Tyler Myers in Carolina. Just think all about, right. it, think about right. it for a second. Because for all, for as maligned as Tyler Myers often is in this market, there's a couple of things that he does truly exceptionally. One of them is he's got the long stick and he does interfere with an awful lot of loose change mm. that's passed into the slot. The other thing is Tyler Myers is elite at like surfing the blue line and denying entries. He's so long and his mobility is so good for a man his size that he's like really good at denying entries um, relative to the rest of his defensive game. Where Myers can struggle is moving the puck. And in Carolina, you never move the puck. <laughs> you just you just punt it. Punt it out Don't of zone. try to do a single thing with never, the puck. Never go east-west ever. Yeah, You get the puck, you flip it. Tyler Myers in Carolina, I'm telling you. Tyler Myers, third pair in Carolina. Could be like a difference maker for them in high leverage playoff series. I believe this. This yeah. is like not... Tyler Myers as the rich man's Jalen Chatfield in Carolina is what uh, you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I honestly, I swear it will work. I'm so convinced. Well, and there's I my mean, Tyler. All, there, there's my Tyler Myers. We know take for Carolina you. also likes their large athletic dudes as well, right? Like if you're if you're big and a decent skater for your size, which Tyler Myers is, they're they're a fan of that. Okay, with the, with Carolina, it's like man, those nerds mining every efficiency, and it's like they like big athletic they guys. Do. It's like everyone should like big athletic guys. I know, but I'm saying it. They do. They went after uh, Pulleyarvi, right? Like, oh, he's six four, moves pretty well, right? We'll take that. <laughs> just saying i, I know I it's true it. i appreciate it but i, just, I think but i think like carolina i see what you're saying there with the fit with carolina but i think the thing with tyler myers is again as as maligned as he is and we all know the limitations we've seen the limitations in his game since he's been here it's not as if he wouldn't have a market at the trade deadline like that's just so clearly the right move for I, the canucks i'm curious to see it i think it would be pretty restrained but i i do think there's oh yeah i'm not saying he's gonna be like the hot commodity no. on the trade market but as a guy you can move especially especially with half retained yeah exactly i, I could see it and, right? and at that point you're also only going to be paying him like 25k for the rest of the year right? exactly so you add in all those things and it would be a huge win for him to get a chance to like if the canucks aren't in the playoff mix but like to because obviously the best thing for him would be to help the canucks make the playoffs and play really well but the Second best thing would be to, you know, have the Ryan O'Reilly opportunity, right? Where you go to a team that does something in the playoffs and, and mm. everyone remembers what you can do with. I want to talk really quickly because about the Canucks blue line, we've talked about this a little bit. One thing I can't shake is that as much as I buy into what we saw from Vancouver under Tockett, the improved two-way form, I, I, I struggle to divorce what we saw from the marginal upgrades, and we talked about this a lot down the stretch last season, the marginal upgrades in the foot speed and puck moving ability of Vancouver's blue line that happened to coincide with Tockett coming in and taking over. Uh, Oliver ekman Larson right. got hurt. He was clearly compromised in terms of his mobility all year. Um, you know, 
a variety of other players missed games. Ethan Bear returned. Akito Hirose signed yeah, and Willanen got seven comes games. up, right? He yeah. got four games out of Hironic. Willanen comes up. Brisebois plays a bunch. Juleson. It's like all of a sudden you went from having zero puck moving other than Quinn Hughes to having like four guys who could reliably make a first pass and move the puck. And it was such an essential part, in my view anyway, watching the games of why the Canucks were able to like punch above their weight again, why their forwards were getting more passes in stride, why we saw more JT Miller with the puck and less JT Miller defense. Um, The team was less reliant on having their forwards do all the work to manufacture their own offense off the forecheck. Like it, the th- like the, you know, the, the knee bone was connected to the thigh <laughs> bone effectively in terms of their overall game. And I do worry a little bit when you lose bear, right? Who was a savant on, on retrievals. I mean, he's not the perfect player. He was turnover prone, right? I don't know that he really embraced like tough minutes, but if the puck went behind him and there was a four checker coming on, he would make like just the perfect little shimmy to avoid the check. And then he'd make a really clean first pass and you were going the other way and they had two guys trapped and he did it time and time again. Honestly, elite at that one phase of the game that's so vital in the contemporary NHL. You lose that guy and you bring in Susie and Cole who absolutely do not do that at a high level. Mm. Like they're, they're not bad puck movers i mean you hope that they can be like Braden mcnab quality yeah, it's puck not, movers. it's not the strength of their game though no but the, i mean certainly they're not nick Hague, mm-hmm. you know or or a white cloud type in terms of being like sturdy defensively and able to do that transitional defenseman stuff um so you lose bear you add those guys now you have heronic coming in and that's going to help but i still think and this is sort of why when we talk about that Canucks third pair and the, and especially that third pair lefty spot. Yeah. Like I think Hirose and Willannon and maybe Matt Irwin types, guys who can move the puck a little, are, are going to be really high leverage pieces for the Canucks this season. Because I still think you need additional puck moving from the back end if you're going to do what this team needs to do, which is create an environment where your forwards like occasionally get a breakout pass in stride, which honestly they've barely gotten in years whenever Quinn Hughes takes a breather. Um, Heronic will help on the second pair, but I still think you need an additional puck mover, like a really reliable dynamic guy on the third pair. And I do like, I really do think stylistically and, and maybe Rick Tockett and Adam foot will go with a more, Breezebois type defensive guy mm-hmm. to start, but I don't think it's going to last. Like, I really think this team needs still like at least a puck mover and a half to, to be a, a, an above average puck moving blue line. I think they got pretty close to being average as a puck moving blue line with like a scattershot group of, of non NHLers last season. And I think it made a huge difference. Um, I just worry that as much as they've improved, like their penalty killing ability, they, they might've compromised a little bit too much on the mobility and puck moving ability on the back end. And and that could be an issue. And you can see it kind of the theory behind the construction, right? If you think that Hughes or sorry, Cole and Susie end up one paired with Hughes, one paired with Hronik, right? And then it's a really good puck mover. You know, obviously Hughes is elite elite and Hronik's a very good puck mover paired with a guy who's not 
a liability, but it's not their strength. They're but, asked to do other things. But this sounds good 10 years ago. No, no, no. But I'm saying, and then you, the the question then becomes. Sorry, but you get well, what I'm saying. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's a like little you passe. Want, you want to raise the ceiling of those, of the second guy on the pair. Well, yeah, 100%. Like, you know, um, Makar is a good fit with a defensive defenseman. But mm-hmm. man, when you put Devon Taves on that pair, it's a lot of fun. Like, you know, Quinn Hughes can carry a pair with anybody. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But man, wouldn't it be fun if we got to see him not? Mm-hmm. Like, wouldn't it be fun if we got to see him play with a guy he could play off of? Uh, you know, at some at some point, I just think I just think that's passe. Like most of these most of these really good teams have four and a half, five puck movers, really reliable ones on the back end. And I, I just sort of see the Canucks going into the season with maybe two. And and potentially a third if Hirose reaches his 90th percentile outcome or Will Annan plays full time. I, I think Will Annan is the guy, right? And you brought up Matt Ir- Irwin, and he's kind of been a very, very under the radar coming in as a signing, uh, yeah. coming into this season. But, you know, somebody else who... He played 60 NHL games Exactly, right? Potential skate, to play, play on that third uh, pairing. But, you know, as much as... I mean, Akito Hirose was kind of the main character of the Canucks for a couple weeks there. But in terms of the actual on-ice results and the ability to move the puck, and you look at his AHL results as well, like Wolanin is that candidate for me that you would want to slot in on the third pair to kind of make up for a lot of... uh, uh, or, or at least to compliment Myers. And look, I get what you're saying. That's not the ideal way to draw up a team, but sometimes you have to make less than ideal choices, right? When you're spending your resources. And I think that's the theory is, can we at least pair? Can we at least have one puck mover? We feel pretty good about on each pairing. And I think will Lannon is your best bet to get, at least as I see it right now to get that on your third pairing. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that take wholesale i just worry that it's still not enough and that we're still in this mode where we're going to be 15 games into the season and i'm going to be watching these games and being like i don't know that this team can connect play well enough i still think they are too slow on the back end Mm -hmm. and too small up front and too shallow in net and if i'm saying that at any point especially in mid-november jamie then we're doing the same song and dance we've done for the first two years of oh, our no. program. Oh, no. No one wants that. Nobody Le- wants that. Least of all us. <laughs> least of all you. Let's be real. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> all right. Oh, that's a good spot to finish for today. Uh, I, I play the hits. You're the one who's like, no more stairway. Yeah, you'd, be, you'd be right in the... Uh, <laughs> you'd be right in your wheelhouse. I would be, I would be in, in my feelings, as the kids say. Uh, all right. We will wrap it up there today. Thanks for listening. We're back tomorrow. Another edition of Canucks Talk. It is... Sportsnet 650.